Well, let's pray that God uh, helps us through this uh, challenging parable. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, please uh, open our eyes to your meaning in the, the Bible here. Please strengthen our grip on your grace as we hear your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're hosting Christmas Day at our place this year, which means a lot of people coming over. And uh, my wife, Jo, was on the phone to one family member during the week who said to her, make sure you have ice cream. Make sure you have lots of ice cream. And it was a reference to um, a fateful Christmas a few years ago, not this one, not at our place, uh, where the pudding was served and there's plum pudding and there was um, fruit salad on the top and there was custard and there was cream and there was no ice cream. And uh, this person was so put out by no ice cream on top of the fruits, pudding, fruit salad, custard and cream that they've never gotten over it. Uh, Christmas was ruined and it was poisoned. I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course, but I kid you not, during the week, make sure there's plenty of ice cream. How do you ruin the joy of Christmas? You forget the ice cream. Well, today we're looking at how to ruin the joy of God's grace in your life if you're a Christian person. When a person discovers the grace of God in Christ, it brings huge joy and peace into their life. Uh, I don't know if you still have that experience or if you can remember that experience of discovering the grace of God, but realising that I am saved and blessed by God's grace, his undeserved kindness, that is, not because of, I deserve it. Uh, I don't have to do good works in order to deserve God's blessing. Jesus has done it for me. I had this debt that I couldn't pay and Jesus paid this debt that he didn't owe and so now I, my sins are paid for and I'm saved by grace. When you realise that, it brings a lot of joy and peace into your life. But as a Christian, you can ruin that. One of the major struggles of the kingdom of heaven is coming to grips with God's grace and holding on to God's grace and holding on to that joy and peace. How is it that a person who believes they're saved by grace can nevertheless become bitter and twisted and joyless and who seems to resent almost everyone and, and everything, including God, and whose favourite phrase seems to be, well, that's not fair. How can you become like that when you believe you're saved by grace? Now, of course, many of us uh, can be bitter at times, Christian or non-Christian, and some of the hardest working most outwardly impressive, most self-sacrificing people in the church can nevertheless have the weakest grip on the grace of God. So today we're thinking about this, uh, this phrase that Jesus, and what he, what he meant when he said, many who are first will be last and the last first. Uh, he says it twice. You remember it was at the, the end of last week's passage, at the end of chapter 19, not chapter 19, verse 30, and then at the end of this week's passage, chapter 20, verse 16, uh, in reverse order. And in between, Jesus tells this parable about the vineyard workers to explain this warning. Many who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is about our grasp of God's grace, which can be slippery to hold on to. So um, as we do, we've been journeying through uh, a section of the Bible this term, Matthew 16 to 20 in this case, the struggles of the kingdom. And last week we saw little children coming to Jesus simply and joyfully. And then we saw the rich young man coming to Jesus, all tied in knots 
and going away sad because he couldn't leave everything to follow Jesus. He couldn't leave his money behind. He was too tangled up in it. So he went away sad, whereas the children went away blessed and happy. And Peter says in chapter 19, verse 27, you might remember from last week, he says, well, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you, in contrast to the rich young man who couldn't do it. So what will there be for us, says Peter? Jesus says, well, you're going to get a lot. You will sit on thrones. You will be top of the heap. It's, It's a good thing to follow Jesus and you'll be rewarded if you do. But then he gives this warning at the end, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And he tells this parable as a warning. So holding on to God's grace and not fumbling God's grace is a trickier issue than you might assume. Uh, The parable depicts God's call to follow Jesus and to enter the kingdom as a landowner hiring workers. So we have the gift of work firstly in verses 1 to 7. This is a normal scenario in the ancient world. The day workers go to the town square at dawn in order to see whether anybody is going to hire them for the day. And if they get work, they get paid. And if they get paid, they can afford to eat that day. Uh, Just the first few verses. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you what is right. So they went. So firstly there, there's God's provision. One reason we go to work is so that we can get paid because when we get paid, then we can afford to live and eat and all that kind of stuff. Uh, That's one basic reason why we work. And this landowner says to these people, come and work and I will look after you. I'll pay you what's right so that you can live. Come and work for me. And that's how it is with God. When he issues the call to follow Jesus, it is a call to come and work. A true Christian is a worker. And God says, become my worker and I will look after you. And he looks after us by giving us eternal life. So that's a pretty good package. You join God's payroll and he pays you eternal life. That's pretty wonderful. So just like those people in the marketplace needed work in order to live, we need to become God's workers in order to live eternally. If you're not working for God, you need to get on his payroll. Uh, But it's more than just the provision. It's also God's purpose. So the people in the parable who aren't hired look a little bit pathetic because they have nothing worthwhile to do. Uh, So let me read you from verse 5. He went out again about noon and about 3 in the afternoon he did the same thing. About 5 in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So maybe there's a hint there of the futility of life outside of Christian discipleship. I mean, what purpose is there to life without the kingdom of heaven? Of course, people make their own meaning in life and sometimes it's just amusing themselves throughout life and it's about as meaningful as twiddling your thumbs and standing around. But the gospel calls a person to eternally significant, meaningful work. Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Whatever else you do, That is your life's work if you're a follower of Jesus. You might be a plumber or an accountant or you might uh, raise the family or whatever else. But underneath all of that, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. That is your life's work. And that purpose is a wonderful gift from God uh, for him to give you his purpose in your life. 
And there are hints that the landowner wasn't just there because he needed people to work in his vineyard. He was looking to do the workers a kindness by giving them work as he went back to the marketplace. He went there personally. He had a foreman, but he didn't send the foreman. He went and hired the workers himself. He kept going back throughout the day to see whether there was anybody there still needing work. He hired people even late in the day who perhaps are the ones who hadn't been hired for a reason. Um, you know, like in PE class at school when they pick the teams and there's always somebody who's left hasn't been picked. Oh, you can be on our team. Well, maybe these guys at five in the afternoon still standing around were not the A team, but the landowner was looking to be generous by giving these people also provision and purpose. And that's what following Jesus gives to us. Most of us, me especially, we're not the A team, and yet we're called, and it is a gift to become a worker of God's. So whether you consider yourself worthy or not, God is calling you. Sign on. In fact, it is the greatest blessing in life to become a worker for God. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you means come and work for me. Become my disciple. And it's working for Jesus that gives us ultimate rest. It's not sitting around doing nothing, twiddling your thumbs. It's actually working for Jesus that gives you rest because you have God's provision, you're set for life in eternity, and you have God's purpose, the right purpose for your life. So you're in the groove you need to be, and that is rest, to be, to be at peace with God. That's the gift of work. That's the gift of discipleship. So that's the first thing we see here. It's a great thing to to be given this gift of working for God. And then uh, the generosity of the landowner comes out further, which is the main point, with the grace of God in verses 8 to 16, because it becomes really obvious that this is a very kind person when it comes time to pay the workers. So firstly, we see the goodness of grace in verses 8 and 9. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So that is a whole day's wage for one hour's, one hour's work. He had gone to the marketplace to seek out any stragglers. He'd taken them on. They'd only worked for an hour, but he looked after them nonetheless. And everybody would have seen that and they would have said, what a great boss, what a good man. They worked him for him for an hour, and how generous is he? He gives them a whole day's pay. This is the goodness of grace. And most people would think, this is a great thing this guy's done. But then again, grace can be difficult to applaud when somebody else gets more of it than you do. So we see the struggle of grace in verses 10 to 15. So when those who came, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Uh, These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So the essential problem was how grace was levelling all the workers. You've made us equal, but we deserve more than them. They were thinking about a hierarchy of deserving. But grace, of course, the whole point of grace is that it removes deserving from the equation. 
Grace gives somebody what they need, not what they deserve. Workers needed a denarius to make ends meet. That's what the boss gave because he didn't want any of his workers to go without. I'll look after you. I'll give you what you need for the day. Just sign on. And God will not let any Christian go without. Um, what is it we need as human beings? Primarily what we need is forgiveness of our sins and salvation and eternal life and the help of the Holy Spirit. We need to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. We need a place in heaven rather than, than in hell. And that's what God gives to all of us equally in Christ if we trust in him. Grace gives you what you need, not what you deserve. Deserving is not part of the equation. Now, someone might say, but what about rewards in heaven? Doesn't the New Testament says there will be levels of reward in heaven? Doesn't deserving come into the equation there? Well, yes, there will be levels of reward in heaven. I think we're taught that in the New Testament. Uh, Luke 19, some good and faithful servants will have charge of 10 cities. Others will have charge of five cities. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, some workers will only just scrape into heaven while others will receive a reward because of the work they did. So there are degrees of reward in heaven. But whatever we understand about that, and there are different understandings out there, we should not let it undermine grace. And that's the point of this parable. We are not going to get to heaven and hear God say, I love you all, but I love the ones who are good Christians even more than the other ones. That's not what he's going to say. Reward in heaven is not going to add a reason for somebody to boast when they get to heaven, as if I can get a little bit of personal glory for myself on top of salvation, which, for which the glory goes to God, just by being a very good Christian. No, rewards will be gifts of grace, just like salvation is a gift of grace, and the glory for the rewards as well as the salvation will go to God, not to us. So deserving is not in the equation there either. The main point in this parable is that grace gives all of us what we need, not what we deserve. It levels all of us, and deserving is not part of the equation. But of course, we can understand the grumbling of the workers who were hired at six o'clock in the morning, can't we, and toiled through the heat of the day. It doesn't seem fair that they get the same as the workers who only did an hour's work. But we need to accept that God's grace is sovereign which means that he can be kind to anybody he pleases in whatever quantity he pleases because it's his money and he can do whatever he pleases with it. And if he's chosen to look after me, if I'm on his payroll, I should just trust him to look after me according to his will and be happy that I'm being looked after. Uh, verse 13, he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give, I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? So there's a rebuke there because if we resent the grace that God gives to somebody else, then we are actually questioning God's right to rule. God's grace is sovereign. We can't tell him where he is obliged to give it. If he were obliged to give more grace to people who are more deserving, it wouldn't be grace anymore. It would be compensation, right? If his grace is not sovereign and free, it's just God paying us what he owes us, and it's not grace. The question at the end of verse 15 is very telling, or are you envious because I'm generous, which literally says, or is your eye evil because I am good? If we resent God's goodness to others, then we are letting his goodness turn us evil. 
If we're so out of step with God that his kindness seems like a bad thing to us, then we're on the way to the dark side. Our attitude to God's grace is all important in the kingdom of heaven. The saying in verse 16 describes the outcome of grace. So the first will be last and the last, uh, the last will be first and the first will be last. The last can be lifted up by God's grace without deserving. The first can be knocked down if they can't come to, to, to terms with God's grace, despite their deserving. So the key question for the kingdom of God is this. Can you accept the sovereign grace of God that levels all his people, regardless of deserving? He just takes care of all of us equally. Can you accept that? And if you can't accept his grace to other people, then I would submit that it means you probably can't accept his grace to, you, to yourself either because you're still too full of yourself. This is the struggle that we all continually face because we're always self-inflating all the time. We always tend to be full of ourselves, unless I'm only speaking for myself. So what this parable teaches us about grasping God's grace, holding on to God's grace, is three things, just to conclude. The first is, don't look sideways. So the workers in the parable, they receive their denarius and the first place they look is sideways at what other people have got to compare what others had received uh, with what they've received and whether it's fair or not. But the very ideas of last and first uh, involve comparison, don't they? Uh, they imply ranking. Am I before other people or am I after them? Am I more deserving of, uh, uh, or less deserving than other people? But it's, it's not helpful to think of last or first or any ranking. It's not helpful to compare and to look sideways. Um, you know, a child can receive a Lego set for Christmas and be overjoyed with it and so thankful and they play with it all day. I love this Lego set, thank you. Until they see the other kid got a bigger Lego set than they did and suddenly the joy is gone and the gratitude is gone and they don't want to play with their Lego set anymore because it's not as big as that kid's Lego set. Adults can be just the same and Christians can be just the same as well. Looking sideways ruins everything because the minute you start comparing, then you start thinking about deserving and you're starting to lose your grip on grace. I can so easily look at somebody else and resent the idea that God might be just as kind to them as he has been to me, maybe even kinder. But I've done the hard yards. They've taken the easy options and compromised as a Christian. And I understand uh, things rightly from the Bible. They're getting things wrong. And I'm the original around here. And they're just Johnny-come-latelys in this church. They, they, they haven't got the runs on the board like I do. I'm more deserving. See, we, we subconsciously compare all the time, and it's totally destructive to our Christian lives. If you compare yourself to others in what you deserve and in what you receive, oh, God's given them that and he's only given me this, it's going to ruin your fellowship with that other person because they become a competitor or a cheat or a loser in your eyes. And it'll ruin your relationship with God as well because he will suddenly become unfair or unkind or out of touch in your eyes when he chooses to be kind to, to somebody else. We need to each receive our denarius and look upwards in thanks, not sideways in judgment. So that's the first thing. Very hard, isn't it? Don't look sideways. Second thing is don't think transactionally. So 
If your first thing you do is you look sideways rather than upwards, then when you do look upwards, your relationship with God will have become transactional. By that I mean if he gave that to that person, then he should give this to me. It's become what you have done for God and what he should do for you compared to what he's done for them. That is, you'll think that God owes you based on what he gave somebody else. And if he doesn't give you what you think he owes you, then you'll resent him and you'll call God unfair. Uh, So we need to think, rather than transactionally, we need to think about God's love and kindness. And we need to think relationally, not transactionally, when it comes to uh, how God deals with us. Uh, Ignoring how God has dealt with somebody else, how has God dealt with me? So if I just think about myself and God, how, how has God been towards me? What is, his, what is God's attitude towards me? Well, we see in Christ that God's attitude towards me is love and grace. And he's taken me on. He's given me eternal prov- uh, provision and ultimate purpose. He's more than met my needs. And whatever I need in the, the future, God is going to provide, even with icing on the cake, I know that God deals with me in that way. He is, so, he is so good to me and he's more than a boss. He's actually my father. So that's what it's like between me and God. Um, and none of that is transactional. He offered to take me on and look after me and I accepted, I, I signed on and now I just trust him. So that's my relationship with God. And as one commentator put it, all human merit shrivels before this burning, self-giving love of God towards one of his people. So how can I pretend that God owes me anything when I consider what he has done for me and how he is towards me? Um, In Luke 17, Jesus says that we shouldn't resent serving God and serving God and serving God again and then having to back up with more serving of God as if we're doing God favours every time we kind of reach some point of service. Uh, Jesus rather says there, when you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. We are unworthy. It's a privilege to be servants of such a great God. We can't make God owe us anything and we don't do God any favours. The grace only goes one way for a Christian. If you think God owes you something because he gave something to somebody else then you're losing your grip on God's grace. So don't look sideways, look upwards, and don't think transactionally, think relationally. And the last thing to mention here is that we need to let God be God. God is a God of grace, and grace is good. God is good. If we start thinking God is doing wrong by being kind to somebody else, then we're losing it. We become like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that, Luke chapter 15? God is so kind to the prodigal son when he comes home and then the older brother gets really annoyed about his father's goodness. He says, hey, it should be all about my goodness compared to his goodness, not your goodness, father. That's what we become like when we start looking sideways and we stop letting God be God. We need to let God be God, which means admitting that he is sovereign, he is in charge, And he can be as kind as he wants to anybody he wants. Who am I to question God? Am I the centre of the universe? It doesn't matter whether I'm the first or the last. I'm in God's care. All that matters is that God's on the throne. He is a good and gracious God. And I am someone to whom he has been very kind. So I want to serve him. 
So there's, I think, constant repentance required probably of all of us uh, over this. Um, thinking that God owes us, looking sideways, not holding on to his grace as comfortably as we need to learn to hold on to it. So um, I'm just going to lead us in this prayer that's at the bottom of the outline. Uh, it can be a response to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you treat me better than I deserve. You invite me to serve Christ and you promise incredible blessing. With gratitude, I accept your invitation. Help me to trust you, not my merits. Please don't let my joy be threatened by comparing myself with others, resenting your grace to them and questioning your goodness. Help me to focus on your grace to me and to praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.